when you go to the doctor's office to hear about your latest lab work results, and the doctor sometimes says, well, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Which would you like to hear first? Some of us want to know the bad news first because we want to get the bad news out of the way. While others of us want to hear only good news because we want to pretend there is nothing wrong, that there's not a problem. Well, in our passages we are studying this morning, we will see Jesus offers the disciples some bad news first, and then he goes to the good news. Sometimes the bad news is better digested when we understand the good news. But our Lord knew what's best as he shares the bad news first, and then he goes to the good news, which then gives us hope on how to face or prepare for our struggles, our trials, the battles that we are in or the battles that we will be in shortly. So let's open our Bibles to John 16, verses 1 through 11. John 16, verses 1 through 11, where we are in the middle of the series in the Gospel of John. And I've entitled this message this morning, Some Bad News, But Mostly Good News. We like good news. So let's go to our Lord in prayer as we begin. Holy Father, we praise you for being able to come together and sing songs of praise to you. Being able to sing such words to you, such penetrating words in our hearts as we praise you and lift you on high, as we get a further glimpse of how mighty and holy and glorious you are and how little we are. Help us to be zealous for Christ. We ask that you give us wisdom. Lead me by your spirit this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 16, starting at verses 1 through 4, Jesus says this, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember what I told you. So Jesus prophesies some really great news, right, to the disciples about their future by saying all their dreams, all their desires will be fulfilled, will come to fruition, will come to pass if they just have enough faith. Christ essentially says that they can have their best life now, right? They can have the riches beyond their wildest imaginations, treasures galore if they just have enough faith. Is that what Christ says? Does Christ say that every day can be Friday if you just have enough faith? 
Of course, the answer is no. Christ tells them the exact opposite. He tells them because of their faith, life will be hard. Life will be filled with suffering and pain. As Jesus doesn't hold back on the future troubles and struggles, Christ shares some bad news with the disciples. He says this, your faith in me will cause you to be kicked out or excommunicated from your places of worship, the synagogue. But it gets worse because Jesus goes on to say that you will be despised. Despised to the point that people will kill you. And when they kill you, guess what? They will think they are worshiping God when they do so. The question is, why would Christ share such awful news with the disciples? Well, verse 4 tells us, right, to keep them from falling away when these things occur in the future. Christ wanted them to be prepared, to be ready for what was going to happen in the future. It was to give them a glimpse of what it meant to be a true follower of God. But some of us may be thinking, wow, you know what? I'm sure glad I'm not an apostle. I'm sure glad I'm not a disciple. I mean, the disciples gave up everything to follow Christ. They left their jobs. They left their homes. They left their comforts of life to follow Christ. And what did they get in return? Suffering, pain, rejection, and ultimately death. But now, in the 21st century, Christianity is so different, right? I mean, God wants us to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, right? Right? I mean, if you go into the Christian bookstores, many of the books espouse or teach that God's goal is to give us heaven on earth. But honestly, I, I must sadly say that most of the books in the Christian bookstore are far from biblical, historical Christianity. Scripture says that all in Christ will suffer, including me and you. Philippians 3.10 says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Which leads to point number one, the bad news is we will suffer as a genuine believer in Christ. Point number one says that bad news is we will suffer as a genuine believer in Christ. Scripture makes it crystal clear that we will suffer, we will go through trials, we will face persecutions of various kinds on this earth. But let's be clear. Christ isn't just trying to torture us or put us through some sort of pain and struggle because he's mean or that because he's callous. That's not why. Christ's love loves us with a love 
beyond what we can understand or imagine. Amen? You're reminded of Christ's love in Ephesians 3 when Paul prays that we know and understand the love of God. When he says this, and I pray that you, being rooted, established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says Christ's love is so great, so amazing, that he prays that we are growing in it, that we are becoming more established in his love, that we know this love on a deeper, a higher, a wider level today than we knew yesterday. But it gets better because the next verse in Ephesians 3.19, Paul says this, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul essentially says the love of Christ is great, is so great that we can't even understand or have the capacity to know this love and how great it is. It's beyond our finite minds. And yet... Paul prays for us to know this love that we can't truly understand or grasp. The question is, why does Paul want us to fully grasp this love of Christ? Why? Well, the end of verse 19 of of Ephesians 3 tells us, so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. It says so we can be filled with God, so we can truly know God, so that we can have confidence in God, that we can have real trust in God, that we can have real faith in Christ, amen? So maybe this morning, maybe you've come and you're in a trial right now. Maybe you're going through the worst of circumstances like a terrible loss, or a sickness, or you're in a relationship full of strife right now. May we remember, may we hold on to the fact that our troubles, our suffering, are all filtered through the loving hands of our sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can have confidence. We can have surety that whatever comes our way is for our good and His glory. Amen? But let's go back to our passages in John 16, verses 5 and 6. And Jesus says this, But now I am, that is Jesus, going to him, the Father, who sent me, and none of you ask me why. Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus here lays on what seems like more bad news as Christ has already told them that they will die in the near future for their faith in Christ, right? And when we think the news couldn't get any worse, well, it does. Because Jesus tells them now, you know what? I'm also going back to the Father. I'm leaving. And at this point, Jesus says that their hearts were filled or overwhelmed with sorrow with sadness, with grief. I think we often read sections like this in Scripture 
and lose the reality of what really is going on. We read it without really experiencing the gravity of what the disciples are going through. I mean, can you imagine being in the disciples' shoes when Jesus says all this to them? Jesus tells them, the world's going to hate you. You will be kicked out of your places of worship. They are going to think they are following, you, following God when they kill you. And if that's not enough, then Christ says, I am leaving you as well. It's time for me to go back to my Father. What's the old saying? When it rains, it what? Pours, right? Well, I wonder how we respond when it pours in our lives. What is our response? Do we go with how we feel? Do we let our emotions run us? Does worry or fear control us? Or do we trust? Do we have faith? Do we hold on to God all the more when we are facing struggles in our life? Well, I must say I'm glad that Jesus doesn't stop there because I think everybody would be really depressed when they left the church this morning. And he goes on from verse 6 to verse 7, and this is what he says when he begins on the good news. He says, Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. Let's stop there for a second. Did I just hear that right? Maybe I read it wrong. Let's read it again. Christ says, it is to your advantage that I go away. The King James says the same thing, so it must be right. Christ tells the disciples that it is better for them if he goes away, if he leaves them. That means this, the disciples won't be able to watch Christ serve the poor, nor will they be able to see Christ heal the blind or the sick or the diseased. They won't be able to watch Christ cast out demons they won't be able to sit at the feet and listen to his great teachings any longer they won't be able to ask him questions and yet christ says it is better it's better that i leave i wonder if that astounds us this morning if that shocks or surprises that christ says it is better that i go away I mean, just think what life would be like if Christ was in the flesh today. He, if he lived among us, can you imagine some of the conversations you and me could have with him, right? I mean, just think what life would be like, right? We would be talking to the very one who created us. The very one who knows the words I am going to say before I even say them. If Jesus was in the flesh today, he would be able to tell us exactly what is in our hearts before we knew what was in our hearts. I remember the bracelets that said WWJD. Yes, I must admit, I'm getting old because most of the teenagers right now have no idea what I'm talking about. They have no clue with what I'm talking about, right? But WWJD would be written on bracelets, which stood for what would Jesus do, right? And it would remind us to consider what God's word said in any given situation that we were in. But if Christ was with us in the flesh, 
We wouldn't have to be reminded of what he did, right? Because he would be, we'd be in his presence. He could just tell us, now, Terry, that's a really bad idea. Don't do that one, right? But nonetheless, Jesus says, it is better that I go. The question is why. Why is it better that he went back to the Father? Well, let's look at um, John 16, verse 7, and he tells us at the end of verse 7. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, it is better that I go. It is to your advantage because the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will come to you. But the question again is why? Why is it better to have the Holy Spirit than Christ in the flesh, right? That's a good question. But it's not just a matter of having Jesus in the flesh or the Holy Spirit But part of the answer is found in what has to happen, what has to take place for the Holy Spirit to come in the first place. I mean, think about it. For the Holy Spirit to come on the scene means the gospel message has come to fruition. Christ becomes the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of God's children to those who repent and trust in him for salvation. But without Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come down to earth. A question you may be thinking is why again? This is starting to sort of remind me of that game that you play with little ones where you answer a question and they ask you why, then you answer that why, which leads to another why, until finally you get to the point that you don't know why anymore either. Right? Right? Well, we aren't there yet, thankfully. I can still answer this why with God's inerrant, infallible, holy word. But this is an important why for us to answer. You probably don't even know what the why is, but let me tell you. The question at hand is this. Why did Christ have to die and raise from the dead in order to have the Holy Spirit come to this earth? The answer is that Christ's death and resurrection had to happen first because Christ accomplished our salvation. And when he went back to heaven, then he sent the Holy Spirit to earth who applied what Christ achieved by giving God's children faith in Christ Jesus. Did you follow me on that one? It leads to this point, which is sort of wrapping all that up. Point number two. The Holy Spirit applies salvation by giving faith in Christ to God's elect. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit applies salvation by giving faith in Christ to God's elect. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The question is, how is one drawn by the Father? How is one drawn by God the Father? And the answer is by the Holy Spirit. So we can see it was good news for Christ to go and the Holy Spirit to come because without Christ leaving, we would still be waiting for the Messiah, which means we'd still be in our sins, separated from God. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't have not have come yet. But let me warn us 
of many today who espouse this false teaching, false doctrine about knowing or focusing on the Holy Spirit alone. They seek out experience experiences with the Holy Spirit, and they go from one emotional experience to the next as they put their Bibles down, and they think they've matured beyond Christ. Church, let's be clear about this here, that the Holy Spirit's role, his, his position is to make much about Christ. A Holy Spirit-filled church is a church that's not fascinated with experiences from the Holy Spirit, but zealous and passionate for their love of Christ. Amen? The Holy Spirit does not want to attract attention to himself. He is always putting the spotlight away from him onto Christ. He's always focusing on Jesus. I wonder this morning if we are zealous for Christ this morning. If we are seeking to grow deeper in our fellowship with Christ. Because if we have the Holy Spirit living in us, he is drawing us to Christ. That's what he does. But we are now in John 16, 8 where Christ gives us the inside scoop of why it is good news that the Holy Spirit comes. And he says this, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So Jesus doesn't start by telling the disciples personally how the Holy Spirit will impact them or benefit them personally, how he will actually be their helper per se. Jesus instead gives the big picture of what the Holy Spirit's mission will be when he is on this earth. Christ gives them an overall function of how the Holy Spirit will operate when he comes down. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit's role will be to convict the world of its error concerning sin righteousness, and judgment, which leads to point number three. Point number three says this. The work of the Spirit convicts the world of sin. The work of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And I know, I know, I have to get with it. I mean, as a young guy, you would think I would understand that sin is so last year, right? Or better said, so last 200 years ago. I mean, we have evolved beyond sin, haven't we? We are sophisticated. We are so high tech. And sin's so out of date, so out of style, so primitive, so basic. But church, the reality is the Bible cuts through all cultures and time as God's word speaks to all people of every generation and scripture teaches that sin was the problem in Jesus' day and sin, I'm sorry to say, is still our problem today. That's what the Bible teaches but getting back to our verses, recognizing the Holy Spirit's main priority is to first convict the world of sin, which means the Holy Spirit's job, think about this, is to prove to the sinner that he is just that, a sinner. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit gives clarity of who we really are. He takes the blinders off so we can have the right view of ourselves. That's what he does. But you may be wondering, how, what does it actually look like to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sins? Well, Robert Murray McChain describes conviction this way. 
to give the person a sense of dreadfulness of his sins and to make him feel how surely he is a lost sinner. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But it's not just a reality of sin for sin's sake because Jesus goes on to verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 9, and he says this concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So Jesus says there is a purpose for the Holy Spirit highlighting or revealing our sin. It's not so people can be better or more upright citizens. That's not why he convicts us of sin. But the convi he convicts the world of sin to draw us to Christ. That's the point. Conviction of sin reveals we have a problem that we can't fix on our own. It reveals we are in need of help and hope, and we can't find it within ourselves to figure out that help. The Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. I wonder if you see your sin this morning. If we came to Christ knowing that we were sinful from head to toe, I wonder if our sinful struggles, even at this moment, are causing us to look to Christ instead of self. But close to his Holy Spirit's conviction of the world of sin, he also, it says, convicts the world of righteousness. Let's read that. And we're going to go back to verse 8 of John 16, and we'll read through verse 10 to give it some context. But Jesus says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Which leads to point number four. The work of the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The work of the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The question, though, you may be thinking is, whose righteousness? Because naturally, humanity thinks they have their own righteousness. We naturally think we are pretty good people, right? This can easily be proven by asking the ran random stranger if they are a good person or a bad person, right? Right? What do you think 99% of people will say? I am a what? Good person, right? That means we think we have our own righteousness, our own goodness within ourselves to say that. That's why Proverbs 21.2 says that all a man's ways seem right to him. All a man's ways seem innocent to him. So we consider our actions our right because we naturally think our heart has the best intentions, the right motives. So that leads us to believe that our thoughts are right, our judgments are good. That's why it's so hard for us to see when we are wrong. I try to help my wife with this all the time, especially when we're in an argument. Can you believe this? I try to show her, obviously, I'm right, and she's wrong. For some reason, she doesn't understand that, though. But, of course, I'm just joking because usually I'm the stubborn one who doesn't see my sin. But, again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit because, because he opens our eyes 
not to our righteousness, not to our goodness per se, but to Christ's righteousness, to Christ's rightness. Amen? That's what happens. Again, verse 10 says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. So it might be clear or more understandable for us if we say that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of their false righteousness while he opens our eyes to Christ's perfect righteousness. I mean, this in itself is a real miracle. We're talking about raising the dead. This is some really good news because we naturally go from thinking that we are so great, that we are so awesome, realizing that we are little, that we are nothing. And it's actually Christ who is truly the one who's great and awesome. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or happy are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless or worthless, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like you. As the person sees that they can't help themselves, that they, can't, they don't have any goodness within themselves, the Holy Spirit turns their attention to Christ. We begin to see Christ clear as the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Christ we see Christ as he really is. We get a glimpse of his purity, his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness. It would be comparable to the sun hidden in the clouds. We can't see it, but it shines regardless if we can't see it in the clouds. And then all of a sudden the sun bursts forth through the clouds and it shines in all its brilliance. And similarly with us, we didn't see Christ as Messiah, as God as an unbeliever, but as the Holy Spirit transformed our darkened heart, our darkened understandings, and the scales fell off of our eyes, for the first time, we got a glimpse of Christ in all his glory. Christ in all his brilliance. That's amazing. But let's move on to our final verse which is John 16, 11. And again, I'll start in verse 8. And it says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and finally judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The final good news is that the God of this world, the devil, is judged, it says here. This leads to point number five. The work of the Spirit convicts the world of Satan's judgment. The work of the Spirit convicts the world of Satan's judgment. Paul says in Colossians 2.15 that when Jesus nailed our sins to the cross, putting away our condemnation, he also did this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. That means Satan's reign has been destroyed through the cross. The very cross that gave me and you life was the very cross that brought 
Satan, death, and condemnation. If we have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, Satan has no power over us as believers. We are controlled by the Holy Spirit instead of the flesh and Satan. But I wonder, as we are discussing this topic of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit convicts us, I wonder if you have been or are being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Is there an area of your life that needs to be changed? Is there an area of your life, which I know there is, by the way, that's not submitted to Christ? There's areas in all of our lives, right, that's not totally submitted to Christ. So we need to repent of those. Follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you are having real marital issues and you continue to ignore the problems instead of seeking godly counsel. Or maybe you have some secret sins that you don't want to let go of and you know the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart on those. Or maybe you are consumed with sins like worry and fear as the Holy Spirit calls you to repent and walk in love and faith. Or maybe you aren't spending time with Christ like you once did as you allowed the busyness of this life to take over. And you know the Holy Spirit is calling you to spend sweet time with your Lord and Savior. Or maybe, or maybe you are harboring bitterness and anger towards Others, other believers, because they hurt you one way or another, and you know the Holy Spirit is drawing you to go to your brothers and sisters and reconcile with them. Well, the good news is, if you're a child of God, then you have the Holy Spirit, and he will continue to bring conviction to your heart. He won't let you go. That is called the grace of God. That he allows you to see your sin and he gives you the actual ability to turn from that sin and glorify, him, glorify Christ instead of yourself. But it's also important for us to remember this. That the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin not just to make us better people, like we said, right? Or better spouses or better children or better teenagers or better coworkers. The point of the conviction by the Holy Spirit is to bring us in closer in deeper fellowship with Christ. That's the point. I pray this morning that we won't leave this place until we act on the conviction the Holy Spirit is bringing to our hearts this morning. That we will confess our sins to Christ, that we will turn from the ways of bondage and live in freedom in the Spirit, in Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to. I pray also that we won't waste any more time being distracted by this world any longer. Let us be people who follow after Christ, who follow hard after Christ. Knowing that the Spirit convicts us so that we can know more of our Lord and Savior. That we can become less and He can become more. Oh, how blessed we are if we know Christ this morning. Amen. Well, let me leave us with the great hymn writer Charles Wesley's last words as he laid on his deathbed. This is what he said. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my 
failing flesh and heart, oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, as we hear the good news, it often doesn't feel like good news, Father, because often we are holding on to our sin that the Spirit is convicting us of. We are holding on to the ways to walk in your truth and running from you like Jonah. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you won't let us go. You'll throw us over the boat. You'll do whatever it takes to bring us to repentance. So I ask that you do that work in our lives, that we will become holy people, not just just in, we want to walk in ways of holiness, Father. We want to be what we already are in Christ, that our actions will be like what you've already made us because of Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just your spirit that has come to us. We thank you that you're willing to sacrifice your life, Jesus, and let the spirit come and dwell within us, those of us who know Christ. In him we pray. Amen.